A few years ago, I had the idea of assessing the conservation status of all of the world's tree species. This was something that had never been done before. In fact, at that point, we weren't even sure how many tree species there are in the world. So I'm pleased to say that after a huge international effort involving hundreds of specialists, we now have an answer to that question. There are around 60,000 tree species in total. We also know, as a result of this assessment, that almost a third of these species are threatened with extinction. So there are more tree species threatened with extinction than the total number of threatened birds, mammals and amphibians put together. Given that trees are such an important part of the world's forest ecosystems, this means that trees are a really important part of the global biodiversity crisis. And the main cause of this problem is human activity, for example logging of forests, clearance of land for agriculture, and the over-exploitation of trees for timber. This programme focuses on a particular group of tree species that are used to make musical instruments. 
So, for example, the music you heard at the beginning of the show was from Haiti and featured tanbu drums. These were kind of barrel drum made from tropical hardwoods, many of which are threatened. The tanbu drums are a really important part of the culture in Haiti, and as they say there, without the drums, our culture would be lost. Of course, tambu drums are just one example of musical instruments that are made from wood. There are many hundreds of others. And many of these instruments are similarly of huge cultural importance. Just imagine the guitar or the violin or the clarinet. All of these are made, at least partly, from threatened tree species. I first became aware of this link between musical instruments and the conservation of tree species around 30 years ago. There was a wonderful conservation initiative called Soundwood, which was organized by the NGO Fauna and Flora International. Soundwood identified more than 70 tree species that were globally threatened and were also used to make musical instruments. And in many cases, the manufacture of these instruments was actually threatening the species through overexploitation. I recently discovered an old promotional video of the Soundwood program. So here's an excerpt from it. Where would we be without trees? Forests are the source of so many aspects of our daily lives. The timbers we build with, the paper we write on, and the musical instruments we play. Forest trees are central to the complex web of life. As well as being habitat for many species of animal, trees in the savannah, such as African blackwood, hold back the onward march of the desert. But this can be a familiar sight. Huge areas of forest felled for timber and burnt to make way for agricultural land. Amid this destruction are many special trees that are used by musical instrument manufacturers. Desired for their tonal qualities, these trees have been crafted by master instrument makers over hundreds of years. Now, trees like African blackwood, Brazilian rosewood, ebony and mahogany are all in danger of commercial extinction. Their numbers are so depleted there are too few trees to satisfy the commercial demand. Well, I, I think for bow makers it would be, and musicians, it would be disastrous if there was no more Pernambuco, so I think one ought to try and persuade the Brazilians not to cut down all the forests. Uh, possibly even replant some trees again. Uh, 
So we're seeing all sorts of timbers that we've grown up with, I guess, as an industry, you know, just not, not available. FFI has launched Soundwood to ensure the long-term survival of these trees, targeting areas where it can really make a difference. Soundwood does not advocate bans, boycotts or total substitution with synthetic replacements. It promotes the use of soundwoods from well-managed timber sources and encourages responsible management through field projects in partnership with local people whose livelihood depends on the forest. It promotes research into alternative species, raising awareness of a problem vital to manufacturers of musical instruments, the musical industry as a whole, and all musicians. It's not just a question of making sure the trees are grown, um, it's a question of, of the whole situation behind those forests and how, it's, how things are going to be developed in the next years, and people's living from the forests and the, and the communities that surround them. And, I think it's a very complicated issue, um, but it is something that concerns um, instrument makers now and, and instrumentalists like myself um, very deeply because um, the future of, of um, instrument making in, say, two, three hundred years' time is going to depend on what is happening now and the future of, um, of those forests. And if we value timber in our everyday lives, we should use wood from sustainable sources. But what is genuinely sustainable timber? And how can we be sure of where it comes from? Some people are already thinking hard about the future of those trees used to make musical instruments. I think one of the difficulties when you hear in the news about the forests and the problems of wood is that we don't know how to get involved with it. Well, this um, project, this promotion of sound wood is there in order that the musicians can specifically see how they can become involved. I mean, it's wonderful that there is now an organisation that you know, we can lend our support to. As the problem is a complex one, and I'm sure, and we all agree on this, there is no one simple, all-embracing solution. As it is a complex situation, we need partnerships. And it's really different sides of the industry and conservation is coming together. It's only in this way that I feel we can find solutions, and many solutions, uh, that will achieve really what we all want, which is the rainforest to survive and future generations to play the world's finest musical instruments made out of these very woods. Unfortunately, there's no choice. It's got to be wood. It's got to be African blackwood. Not only for me, but for thousands and thousands of people who will not only play, but listen as well. They'd, they'd hear a different sound, they'd hear a different tone, you know, a different, different thing altogether. It's got to be African blackwood, I'm afraid. Paradoxically, the demand for timber can have a positive role in forest conservation, provided the forests are managed to the high standards of the FSC. The project already has wide support. At the end of the day, Sandwood is providing some hard facts on a situation that is getting worse by the minute. It's not going to go away. 
the reason I got involved with Soundwood is because it's, it's aimed at the musician, it's aimed at the industry that I'm in. I think the Soundwood project is um, possibly um, the only serious project which is addressing the very serious issues of the management of rare and endangered woods. Again, it's the only project I'm aware of that is really getting down to grassroots level and is increasing public awareness in this area. I discovered that there were certain instruments that maybe wouldn't be able to be made in the future. And, for instance, because I play percussion, the marimba, if it was made of any other sort of substance, you just would not have the warmth and the beauty of the instrument. In the future, if I was going to buy something, I'd see if it had the stamp, the FSC stamp on it, to make sure that the, the wood was being protected. But we've got to kind of look after our planet. We haven't done a very good job so far. Um, I think it's about time we, we all did a bit. And if the guitar industry can do its bit, as far as I'm concerned, great. We have to do something now. Otherwise, in 50 years' time, everybody's going to be playing plastic oboes and, you know, uh, carbon fiber guitars and wondering what that, uh, that stuff was they used to make them out of. You know. When you think that the music conservatories of the world turn out 100,000 classical players a year. Um, it won't be long before people will notice that instruments are, are very rare indeed. It won't take more than maybe two generations. Ebony, rosewood, Pernambuco, and African blackwood are all on the danger list. Brazilian rosewood is already banned from international trade. Madagascar rosewood is commercially extinct and there's a limited and diminishing supply of Brazilian mahogany. Action is needed now. If you value the sounds of wooden instruments, the forests where they grow, and the people who live there, then you have an important contribution to make. The alternative is the loss of yet more invaluable species and the music they play forever. After watching the video again after all these years, I began to wonder what had happened since. In other words, had the problem been solved? Well, we know from the global tree assessment that all of those species that were threatened 30 years ago are now even more threatened. So the problem hasn't gone away. So I wondered to what extent are musicians today aware of this problem? And also what's being done about it now? because the Soundwood project finished many years ago. To explore this further, I first discussed it with the clarinetist and composer Corin Wimhurst. Mm -hmm. 
so my name is Karen Wimhurst. I work as a composer and a clarinetist and yeah, do all kinds of things associated with music. Brilliant. So it's, it's your clarinet interest I wanted to talk to you about. So can you tell me how long you've been playing the clarinet? Oh, since I was about eight, I think. So that many years. Many now. years. We, won't, we don't need <laughs> we won't a precise know exactly number. how many years, but many years. So presumably over the years you've, you've played many different clarinets. I mean, mm. presumably you've owned a few, and I know you've got one of those huge, what do they call it, the really big one? Yeah, I've got a Selma bass clarinet. I mean, that's just an awesome instrument. And, that, yeah. and that's wood as well, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, so that's an expensive um, piece of kit, but it's a lovely instrument. Tremendous mm. sound. Yeah. Yeah, my B flat instrument. Well, I play a buffet DG, which they don't isn't made anymore. Oh. And I feel that one is has a very particular sound. In fact, a while back, I thought about uh, selling it and, and sort of moving on to a newer model because some of its key work is a bit loose. All this yeah. kind of stuff. But um, I took it to uh, um, the place I was going to. I, I took it to Dorks, and he said, "Don't sell it. They just don't make." They don't make one with a sound like that. That's a one-off. Just keep it. So yeah. I just kept it. <laughs> and obviously it's a sound you love. It is a sound I love. It's quite... Um, yeah, it's quite distinct. It has very... Because you have the Chalamet register and the clarinet and then you go up high, um, people want different things from clarinets. So there's been a move to sort of even out the tone of you know registers, which is very helpful if you're playing in an orchestra I or something see. like that. But that isn't my... No, that's not really what I do and what I want is a full range of colour, the biggest range of colour. So I suppose that's what I think the DG offers, my DG. That's lovely to meet a connoisseur of clarinets, that's <laughs> so brilliant. And um, so let's get on to the African Blackwood story then because I think you're the only person I've met who both plays the clarinet and has been to actually visit where these you know, where the wood is produced that these clarinets are made from. So you made this amazing trip to... Tanzania, didn't you? Yeah, to southern back. Tanzania. I mean, it, it came by chance, really, because my partner was sent out um, to do an auditing job of these woodlands. And it was quite late notice. And I was thinking, oh, you know, shall we go with him? And then we're discussing it. And I suddenly realised that actually these were in Pingo Woodlands, African Blackwood. And that was where my clarinet came from. Well, I don't know if it was specifically where my clar my clarinet came from, but certainly... You know, these are the woods which instruments, oboes, clarinets, um, chanters for bagpipes are made are made of. And so we headed out there and I thought, well, I'll take my clarinet back to the woodlands. Yeah. <laughs> which was, well, it was an extraordinary experience, really. I mean, to, for somebody who's quite aware of, I don't of, of things I eat, you know, whether they're local or what is their implicit carbon footprint and this kind of stuff. I'd never really thought about my clarinet, which seems extraordinary, doesn't it? But right. I just had had it for a long while. I just hadn't really thought about it. So I was going to ask you about that with the other clarinetists who you know. I mean, how, how aware are people generally that this is a really threatened species of tree? I don't think it's a conversation I've yeah. ever had with people. Amazing. Which is strange, isn't it? It is. So tell me more about taking the clarinet back to its mm. home planet. So, <laughs> well, we got to southern Tanzania and I went on this excursion where um, my partner was actually going out to see these, these woodlands, to see the, um, how, they, how they were working them. 
but um, I got taken with my son uh, on the on the trip. They went on a bit further, but we got dropped off in this village. So we kind of went along with these wooded, wooded uh, we were taken on these very rutted tracks into the forest. I mean, nobody knew we were coming because it sort of seemed to happen <laughs> quite last moment and there'd been <laughs> rains and there's no electricity there, you know. Right. So yeah. suddenly I appeared in this forest with this clarinet, <laughs> these bewildered looking um, villagers, really. And uh, I just thought, well, I'm going to take my clarinet and I'm going to play to them. Because it did occur to me that they just might know, not know really what it looks point. like. Yeah. You know, what is this wood which they are harvesting actually um, shipped off to do? Good point. And, uh, yeah, so I took out my clarinet and I wandered around the village and played various pieces of music. And I soon had a clarinet, uh, I soon had a big sort of gaggle of people all around me <laughs> watching. <laughs> and we sat down and we had this impromptu concert. It was really something. So I was playing to them. And then they all sung to me. Oh, that's lovely. Uh, you know, all that. the women got up and decided they would sing to me. And they were amazing. Wow. You know, because it was all this sort of incredibly complicated clapping and yeah. singing. And polyrhythmic. Polyrhythmic, yeah. exactly. And so it was quite an event. Uh, yeah, and then and all these men had gathered. Mm. And then they got called away from the concert because my partner's party had got stuck in some mud. I don't <laughs> so they all had to leave to dig out the car. <laughs> so they were all kind of really disgruntled about that. And then I got taken by the... Well, then my son... I mean, I was a bit a total oddity. I have, and, yeah. and the clarinet was sort of... So such had, a, they, had they ever seen a clarinet I before? don't think so, no. no. And it was such a high-tech thing. Mm. This is the thing in a very poor village where everybody is subsistence living. Right. It was like, uh, yeah, it was, it was such a piece of wealth. Right. Which isn't how I really think about my clarinet, but there I certainly felt it. You know, these intricate kind of key works and all the amazing craftsmanship which had gone in yeah. to, make, to manifest this instrument. Yeah. What, what do you think they, they, they felt about that, seeing, seeing this this I, instrument yeah i mean it was well some things didn't get translated let's say <laughs> by my translator i don't know i felt yeah. yeah i mean in some ways you felt oh my god this is such a manifestation of wealth in a yeah. uh in a very very poor community yes um but i don't know if they felt that you know um well there is an argument too because you're in an area where they're trying to manage it sustainably which we'll we'll talk about in a minute with your with your partner absolutely you so know it's putting a value on these forests isn't it so absolutely really important yeah and i mean one thing which i thought coming back from the trip which never i i never really managed to make it happen but i mean you know there are some areas in northern tanzania where there's instrumentalists from i think uh canada and the u.s That's you know right. actually put in money yeah. to replant them sustainably yes. in this way and i thought actually in england if we could do something with these uh forests in in the south of tanzania it'd be really great that's a really great idea yeah, yeah. but nothing's happening nothing, as far as nothing really happened i, I sort of yeah. suggested it in an article i wrote but nobody contacted me and really you know, just one of those things that, so there's still a job to be done there's in raising a job awareness. to be done yes Okay. And because we have, because we have such good contacts with you know these people, mm. and they've essentially put these woodlands into management yeah. 
of the surrounding villages. So it's the villagers who are getting yeah. the benefit. It's, it's a, a great fantastic project, isn't it? project. Yes, it is. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And what was the legacy of that visit for you then? Did it change your relationship with your clarinet or how you, how you think about it? Well, it made me think this is a very precious instrument. Mm. And if I, if I was to move on from it, I would always look for something which was sustainable. Right. So in this, in this country, you know, I think um, Hanson's, which is a British maker, does use FSC right. certified, certified wood. Yes. Okay. And then there are, these, there, there are these clarinets from other sources, green, so green line clarinets, which are made out of composite um, wood. So, I mean, my clarinet, I think, is made from the very heart of the tree, you know, the real quality wood. But there are other clarinets these days which are sort of, well, I guess from not such good quality yes. wood, which is mixed up with resin. And yes. I'd certainly look at all those. And oh, that's really interesting. So it has it, made you think a bit about yeah, if I was, where it's coming from. If I was to move on, then I would really consider what, was, what wood I was using. After chatting to Karen, I wondered whether anybody else had had the idea of taking clarinets back to their roots and using that to promote the conservation of African blackwood. And wonderfully, the answer is yes. So here's some information about the Daraja Music Initiative. Daraja in Swahili means bridge, and so Daraja Music Initiative aims to bridge musical cultures. Tanzania was chosen as a site location for this particular project because the National Tree of Tanzania in Pingo is the tree that musical instruments are derived from, uh, specifically clarinets. We were founded in 2010 by Michelle von Haug, who had a deep interest in music and conservation. She wanted to uh, tell the story of the clarinet from the very beginning and to bring that clarinet back to its origins in a way that in empowered the community that it came from. When Michelle kind of heard like, oh, clarinets come from Africa, no one's really doing anything to replenish these instruments, but we're cutting down trees at like an alarming rate. What's happening? So she kind of jumped on a plane, grabbed a bunch of clarinets, went to Africa, and then it just became something that I absolutely had to do. To show up with a clarinet, uh, an instrument that locals have not heard of, that they have rarely seen or heard, um, did not yield immediate positive results. And so uh, with some time and with some energy and with some connections, uh, she was able to start to build these relationships. Throughout the course of the summer, kids are given group music lessons and private music lessons. So during that time, they're learning best practices of whatever instrument they're holding, the fundamentals of that. They're learning how to read music. They're learning how to play music. And probably most importantly, they're learning how to make music together in a group setting. Uh, and then during the time that we're not there, uh, the kids still continue to practice. My favorite story was uh, Ronald at TPC. So he went and recruited his own friends to play those instruments. And then he taught those friends those instruments so that when we showed up again the next year, 
Ronald said, uh, Madame, this is so-and-so, he plays the saxophone. And I was like, no, he doesn't. He's not a paragraph program. I've never met Claude before. He was, Claude's a good saxophone player. Claude comes out, he plays saxophone beautifully. And I was like, where did you learn to do that? He goes, my teacher Ronald showed me how to do this. I was like, oh, okay, well, cool. It, it's so amazing to me because they've never even seen the instrument before we give it to them. And then it, they're like band kids anywhere in the world where they're like, okay, this is me, this is my family. I'm gonna go recruit more people to be a part of my family and I'm gonna teach them everything they need to know. The growth is kind of all over the map because our kids are so like, there's such a community with amongst the students. So you might have someone who's been playing only six months, hanging out with someone who's been playing in our program for four or five years and they're teaching them songs like, across like curriculum. So even though like this beginning student might not be ready for some of these fingerings and techniques, they're going to their friends like, oh, show me this, show me this. So it's a lot of peer-to-peer -peer teaching and a lot of just peer-to-peer -peer mentoring that happens as well, naturally. Just giving them this opportunity to try something new that they've never seen, never heard. They don't think they might be good at it, but then as soon as they do it, they're like, oh, I can do this. Like, you can kind of see the light turns on, and that's, I think, universal for any student, no matter where you are. Tanzania is classified as a least developed nation. The schools are lacking resources, and they're lacking the materials they need in order to create creative educational spaces. They don't have instruments. They don't have scarves or toys. They, it's so limited. They just sing songs, which is great. Like singing is good for you. It's good for your brain development. So to give them an instrument and put all of that practice into making music with an object that is theirs, uh, I think makes such a huge impression on them. As the organization progressed and as we continue to go back year after year, that idea of sort of music education for social change really evolved and developed in such a way that it also began to include a much deeper conservation education element. Conservation classes, we try to do them every day. Um, some of our volunteers will teach the sustainability and conservation efforts too. So a lot of these students don't get the things that we get in the United States when it comes to conservation of like reduce, reuse, recycle the ability to work with the community side by side in partnership is essential to the work that we're doing in order to help create a sustainable future both for the tree but also for their community at large. We're really proud of all of the community partnerships that we have in Tanzania. One of them is with Sam Wally who is our tree guy. Uh, he grows all of our mangoes from saplings. We plant anywhere from 10 to 30 trees at a time. Uh, and we'll, we'll finish the planting with a, a music ceremony where we, uh, we play the Tanzanian National Anthem. But our greater message being that the Impingo that we've planted today is, uh, has brought us together in this moment. That I play the clarinet, I'm here in Tanzania because I love the Impingo tree. The Impingo tree is the national tree of Tanzania and so therefore we're connected in a really powerful way. Tanzania is a beautiful country, and so few of our kids actually get to go out and see those breathtaking environmental places that Tanzania has to offer. A small portion of what we do, a weekly field trip, really leads um, a lifetime impact on them. I think music is this vehicle for, uh, for social change. 
um, I think it, it gives the kids the ability to to take themselves from whatever situation that they're in to be a part of something bigger than themselves, um, to see themselves succeeding at anything. And so, and we know this as musicians and as music teachers, that not all of our kids are going to go on to be professional clarinet players. They're going to go on to do really big things though. They're going to go on to, to make their communities better and to provide jobs for more people in the world. And we see that with our kids now. They're doing these things and they're, they're not doing it with the clarinet in their face the whole time, but they have this thing that they learned about clarinet that they're applying to the rest of their lives. It's really exciting to think that music could actually be part of the solution to this problem rather than just its cause. So to explore this further, I chatted with Robin Walter, who's a forester as well as a musician. Yeah, my name's Robin Walter. I'm a forester. Um, and I, one, of my, one of the things I do is I'm an auditor for certified timber. Um, I work as a contractor for the Soil Association, which is one of the main certifying bodies in Britain. And they're also active all around the world. And uh, so they send me off to audit um, various... Uh, uh, certificate holders and groups, mostly in the UK, uh, some in Ireland, and I've had a couple of trips to Africa, one of which was to southern Tanzania in January 2016, I think. And could you maybe just briefly explain what certification is and how it's supposed to work? Because quite a lot of people don't really understand or, or even know what it is. So forest certifications started in the 90s I think there was the Rio Earth Summit in 1992 and I think that generated a lot of interest in sustainable sort of audit trails for well, how do we know the materials we're using come from sustainable sources and I think there was sort of developments through the 90s and the Forest Stewardship Council was set up they're one of the main worldwide certifying standards of which I think there are several and by the end of the 90s, that was set up. So it's a, it's a global standard of sustainable forest management, which covers not only what happens in the forest, you know, your, 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 your planning and your operations and the chemicals you use and things like that, but it, it also covers um, social things like are you treating your workers fairly, are you paying them a fair wage, how are you dealing with your neighbours, are you responding to public concerns. Mm. Yeah, and, and there's a strong environmental sort of section as well about um, are you conserving areas of high conservation value things like that so it's a worldwide standard and it's supposed to then link with eco labeling in a way isn't it so the oh yes yeah. consumer so, can be confident that yeah. they bought something yeah so um so it's a voluntary it's a voluntary program and uh, if a forest owner or manager wants to sign up they 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 can do so and they have to jump through a number of hoops and reach a certain sort of benchmark of good practice and in order to check that they're actually doing what they say they do someone has to go and audit that and I'm one of those people yeah so I'd love to know um what your impression was specifically of this forest of, uh, of African Blackwood in Tanzania were you impressed about how sustainable it was or were, are there still challenges there about about managing these forests yes um, I mean that was an extraordinary um opportunity it's, it's quite an unusual project in, in Tanzania, I, I believe the state owns, by default, owns the land. 
presumably a, a, a kind of legacy of the sort of socialist uh, Nereri mm. era. Uh, in certain cases, if a village wants to sort of take over the management of their local forest or even the ownership, I believe, they they go through a process of um, sort of applying to the government or the regional council or whoever, and um, and you know saying, well, we'll look after this this area of forest, and that is a massive advantage. So the project I was looking at was um, called MCDI, the Mpingo Conservation and Development Initiative, which is an NGO, uh, and they have a collection. I think at the time I audited of a dozen or so villages. Yeah who had gone through this process and um, taken on uh, the management of their local woods. And so rather than, I guess, the government or the, or the local representative of the government selling off a, an area of forest to a timber buyer and then kind of taking the wood and it, shipping it off, you know, who knows where, uh, actually the, 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 the village are now in, you know, they, the, the timber buyers have to go to the village. Mm. And so the villagers have... A vested interest in protecting the woods, right? Uh, from well, nefarious uses or, or mm. poaching or yeah, there's a lot of illegal or overcutting yeah, or yeah, anything yeah. else. So, for example, when we were driving um, out into uh, uh, you know down sort of dirt roads to these remote villages, we came across one area that had been um, there had been some illegal sort of slash and burn agriculture, yeah. and it had all been planted with sesame. Oh, really? Because sesame wow. was the big Cash, cash thing, crop. cash crop, you could grow in a couple of years. So there was, there was, it was actually tragic to see this sort of cleared area, all these charred oh, trees, uh, and, and little green tufts coming out of the soil. And um, in fact, the people we were with hadn't known about this one, so they were all kind of busy taking notes and, okay. and uh, wow. taking photos and yeah. things. It was quite a big incursion, um, and so it was actually that wasn't a certified area. Um, but uh, uh, certainly if it had been a certified area that would have been a direct loss to their you know to their income and their their management of these woods so, so the yeah. so the, the the sale of the of the timber goes to the village rather than to the government that's really interesting so, and so, yeah. so it's a it's a very direct interest you know to them to, to not have i don't know animals grazing through young you know young area you know, areas of young trees so they so they grow up people aren't slashing and burning and growing sesame people aren't just wow. coming in with a chainsaw knocking down some trees so you got the sense off. then that the certification process has helped conserve these forests yeah yes so the the so you could i mean you could set up that system and not be certified uh certainly the ownership and management of the local resource was a was a big seemed to be a big driver both for the protection of the woods and for the for the well-being of the village, because they, yes. they get many times more. And had, uh, had, the, uh, had the NGO helped with that? Process? So, so, yeah. so the yeah the NGO uh, MCDI, they actually won prizes. The guy who ran it mm. won a, a prize. He came to a prize giving in London actually, um, and I think people from you know other parts of Africa come to visit to see it as a kind of model, uh, a model program. The the certification comes in. As a, it's a sort of a, it's a sort of a, an assurance. Well, it is an assurance scheme for, for for buyers to know, you know, what they're buying, and they can they can buy with confidence that it, you know, it, it, it is what it says on the tin, so to speak. Yes. Well, it's it's really encouraging to hear that it, it was working. Yeah. You feel it was working. Yeah. No, I do. I mean, yeah. it's been going quite a while, and yeah. there are figures for 
there was like tens of thousands of people involved in this thing yeah. uh, because you know the, the, when you take the, the, the entire populations of, of the villages and of course you know the, the money goes into either building schools mm. or kind of clinics or things like that so a, a, a wide number of people have benefited not just the sort of you know forest community as uh, yeah. forest workers and um, yes I mean even back then I think the figure was somewhere around a quarter of a million dollars had gone into these communities, which otherwise, which is a huge know, amount, which them. is a huge amount of money, mm. in in a very poor place. But one, one final question, Ron, because I think unique among all the foresters I know, you're also a practicing musician. <laughs> you play the guitar and ukulele and mm. other instruments too. But have you connected your interest in forestry with the woods that go into the construction of your instruments? Because again, quite a lot of precious and threatened. Woods are used in guitar manufacturing. Uh, absolutely, um, rosewood is one of the most famous ones. Um, use a very dark black wood used to make um, fretboards, and right. uh, um, I, th- that's not used anymore. I think it's, I think it's protected under CITES, isn't it? Yes, something um, yes. So it's you know you're not allowed to use that. Well, that, that, you can use it. It's just regulated. Oh, all right. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yes, I haven't. Uh, again, a, a bit like Karen, I haven't. It's not the first thing I think about when I when I look at an instrument. You don't often see, you know, as you're kind of looking through a, a guitar shop. I haven't been really looked through one for a while, but label, a label yeah. on there, wood from sustainable sources. No, that's the thing. You don't see it very you often, just, do you? You just don't see it no. very often. And no. uh, I think there probably is some work to do on that. After chatting to Robin, I thought I'd try and find out a bit more about the use of threatened trees to make guitars. Guitars are incredibly popular. The global industry is worth more than a billion dollars a year, which means that about one dollar out of every six spent on musical instruments is actually spent on guitars. This must be because guitars sound wonderful. To provide evidence of this, here's a short clip of the guitarist Michael Watts playing an acoustic guitar made out of old-growth mahogany. Mahogany is another tree that's very threatened, mostly because of over-exploitation. But listening to this, you can see why it's sought after for musical instrument manufacture.
In addition to mahogany, a number of other threatened tropical trees are used in the manufacture of guitars, including Brazilian rosewood and ebony. Much of the wood is derived from places with a, a history of environmental conflict and colonial violence. There have also been scandals in the guitar manufacturing industry over the use of illegally sourced wood. While researching this podcast, I came across a really marvellous book produced by two Australian researchers, Chris Gibson and Andrew Warren. They spent six years travelling around the world, exploring the supply chains for guitars and visiting the places where the trees are harvested. The book is called The Guitar and is a really great read. Here's a brief excerpt of a discussion they held about it with Michael Shields. It's a relatively recent thing that sees rows are being used in guitars. It's really from the, um, the mid-1700s onwards, whereas spruces and ebonies and other timbers have been used in guitar and violin making for many centuries more with these materials. And it's all to do with the colonial trade, it's all to do with the Spanish Empire, uh, the Portuguese trading system as well that connected through to Brazil. Um, you know, and there's multiple chapters dedicated to, to different trees that are really well known in making guitars. But Rosewood's a fascinating one I'd like to touch on for a second because it was it was involved in a recent controversy. I think a lot of people would remember with Gibson um, guitars and uh, in Nashville, they actually were rated by the feds. And I think that's a fun story to discuss. And, you know, you do point out that it is, you know, the, the most controversial of guitar timbers. And that's obviously to this day. Um, I'd love to kind of hear you touch on the the what happened at Gibson and, you know, how that relates. I think the, the, um, the industry learned a lot from that too, and had to change a lot as well. So that's, that's a good jumping off point to, you know, where the, the guitar futures as, as well, I'm sure we'll talk about soon. That, you're right. There's a lot of controversy around the fact that, yeah, Gibson guitar factories in Memphis and Nashville have been raided a couple of times by the mm -hmm. feds over questions around the origins of the rosewood and ebony that had been seized. Yeah. And yeah, it's a complicated sort of, backstory that's to do with the way in which um, timber trading internationally is now regulated. So there's a big convention called CITES, the Convention on the International Trade in Endangered Species. It's the, it's the global legal instrument that protects things like ivory, for example, elephants um, and the trade of ivory. Hmm. Uh, and it, it applies now to plants. So trees uh, that are the tree species that are threatened can be listed um, on that. And rosewood and ebony and a, a variety of other guitar timbers are now listed oh, on man, that and yeah. got, got a yeah, degree yeah. of protection because of that. But there hadn't really been any in, domestic enforcement of that in the US um, until the fateful guitar, a Gibson guitar raids. Mm -hmm. um, but really what's interesting is the way that it sent shockwaves through the industry because yeah. it really put the industry on notice that it needed to be much more transparent about where the wood was coming from and what kind of impacts um were involved in its, you know, in extracting it from forests and exporting it. Yeah, and I guess what what the Gibson raids I think did for the industry was obviously bring a, a sense of public awareness, but also it created uh, a role for kind of experts in being able to ensure that that sort of the supply chain, the procurement of timber, was legitimate. You know, we're doing things the right way, but also increasingly then particularly amongst some of the bigger guitar companies and manufacturers, kind of push them to integrate yeah. into kind of forestry management. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of important work was done in, in skilling up 
uh, the workforce in kind of understanding a bit more about the timber, where it came from, the conditions under which it grows, mm. the need to kind of invest back into thinking about the future and, and the ways in which uh, a supply of, of this resource can be kind of shored up for future generations. And I think that that's really there's a lot of lessons more broadly for society, I think, that can come from what the guitar industry is is doing. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. It did. It steered them to actually thinking about where we source more and just, you know, how that, you know, needs to be protected in a major way instead of using and taking. It's, it's, it's pretty cool. Um, have to bring up climate change real quick because that's another game changer facing the industry. Um, I, you know, I think it's fairly obvious to a lot of people how, um, you know, drought and higher temperatures can lead to some higher, you know, more intense uh, uh, fires. But, um, you know, there's specific instances pointing out, uh, pointed out in your book where, um, you know, certain trees that are used for crafting guitars are, you know, under threat because of climate change. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit, what, how, how climate change is really affecting the industry. It's very important. Look, I mean, all forests globally are um, exposed to climate change volatility now increasingly. Um, and really the story is that it pans out differently for wet temperate forests on the west coast of Canada compared to tropical forests in Madagascar or, you know, subtropical Queensland where there are guitar trees that grow as well. So. There are specific in, specific impacts on all those places, but in certainly in um, in the Pacific Northwest and in, into the Rockies, where a lot of spruce trees grow that are you know guitar trees. Yeah, um, it's this sort of complex interplay of both warmer uh, warmer weather and more there. You know, as you say, forest fire risks are accelerated. Mm-hmm. Now there are all these other chain the kind of causal effects, these chain effects that happen as well. So, for example. In that part of the world, in the Pacific Northwest, in the Rockies, you've had warmer winters now, which enable beetles and other pests to survive more effectively through those winters. They normally get killed off in vast numbers. Mm -hmm. So when the summer hits, spring hits again, um, those those pests go crazy, basically. So you're getting whole kind of like mountainsides of Mm -hmm. spruce that are dying as a consequence of that. And, of course, the the so-called natural range of those the habitat of those trees will shift as well in latitudinally. Like, it, you know, you may find that um, the, um, you know, the, the, the best place to grow those trees will, will shift around geographically. It'll be further up mountain slopes or it'll be further, you know, towards the poles perhaps yeah. in different places too. So, yeah, it creates a lot of uncertainty for the industry. And I think that, you know, that combined with this sort of shape-up after the Gibson raids has really brought about a mentality in the guitar industry that you can't take the resource for granted. That an era in which you sort of imagine that there was a never-ending supply of resource, you just picked up the phone to a sawmill and put an order in and you would receive the materials you needed the next week or whatever, mm-hmm. that kind of mentality is gone. There's now a sort of sense that um, supply is going to be interrupted. We need diverse supplies. We can't just rely on the same timber from the same place forever. It won't last. So you're seeing that translate into things like more diverse forms of guitar design, um, experiments with um, using um, four pieces to make a top of a guitar or three rather than two, which means you can use smaller pieces of wood. Um, and you're getting sort of, you know, a real trend towards limited releases and special runs of mm-hmm. trees or, you know, timber, 
guitars using timber that have come from perhaps rare trees or salvaged trees or these unusual sources. So, yeah, there's a whole kind of mentality change there in that industry. And as, as Andrew says, I think it is actually emblematic of something which we need to comprehend more broadly across society, right? Like yeah. um, all of those, we've even seen it with the pandemic, with supply chain interruptions as well. Like you just can't take for granted anymore, I think, that um, those smooth sort of supply chains that just, we don't even think about that kind of like supply the world with stuff that we need in our lives. Well, that you can't be, they can't be guaranteed anymore. Another example where progress is being made in the conservation of threatened trees is Pernambuco, which is also known as Pau Brazil. This is one of the species that was originally highlighted by the Soundwood project. It's used for the construction of bows for violins and other stringed instruments. In fact, it's the tree after which Brazil itself is named. It's now so threatened that it's been listed on Appendix 2 of CITES, which is the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species. This listing occurred in 2007, after many years of lobbying by conservation organisations. And it had a big impact on the music business, because it really drove home the message that orchestral music, as we currently know it, could actually be at risk because of the loss of these tree species. Listing on CITES hasn't completely solved the problem. For example, only in 2018, authorities seized more than 20,000 violin bows made from illegally logged wood. But the CITES listing also stimulated development of the International Pernambuco Conservation Initiative, which was mostly led by the manufacturers of violin bows. And it's fantastic to see the kind of activities that the IPCI has done. For example, supporting youth orchestras in Brazil and an extensive planting programme for the species involving children. You can find details of one of these projects at treesofmusic.org. This was created by the master bowmaker and ecologist Marco Riposo who's working with other leading bow makers and classical music players to launch the Trees of Music campaign. The idea is to raise money to distribute Pernambuco seedlings to farmers in Brazil. The idea is to support local livelihoods while also securing the sustainable future of stringed instrument playing. It's a wonderful project, so I'm going to close with a short description of it which starts with the Noki Koi fire song.
The violin sings through the bow, vibrating through the wood that gave its name to Brazil. Brazil wood, or Pernambuco wood, the tree of music, traded for centuries for its unique resonance. Brazil wood has been pushed to the brink of extinction, and 93% of its Atlantic forest home is gone. In a more recent economic cycle, the rubber boom of the Western Amazon drove the wheels of industry and war in Europe from the late 19th century. The song, sung by the leader of the Nokikoi indigenous nation, tells the story of the rubber boom seen through indigenous eyes. Strangers are coming to take our land. Fires are coming, destroying our homes. Ecosystems and cultures are still being destroyed today to feed livestock and seize mineral wealth. And now even the rainfall is failing, with impacts cascading across borders to disrupt weather systems in Europe and harvests in Africa. We can heal the wounds of our planet if we listen to the music of the forest and support the cultures that know her rhythms. Led by the ambitions and local understanding of trusted partners in indigenous villages, urban women's groups and other communities facing the impacts of climate change, RAIN is planting Pernambuco trees and regenerating ecosystems and communities, building a sustainable network to share skills, ideas and resources and ensure the resilience of everyone on the planet. What part can you play? Visit treesofmusic.org to download the song and please consider donating to support the sounds of the forest.